From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome to another two hours of sports analytics. We do it every week here on SiriusXM. We've been coming to you via the power of Zoom for the last year and a half. It allows all of us to be here no matter what corner of the globe we're in, if we're available. We have the whole team here. As a matter of fact, this week we have Audie Weiner, we have Shane Jensen, Eric Bradlow, and this is Cade Massey. Good afternoon, fellas. It's, we're recording on Tuesday afternoon for posting on Wednesday. How's everybody doing out there? Excellent. Doing well. Uh, 200 million has kicked in for the Yankees fast, so I'm doing extremely well. Thank you for asking. Well, I want to hear about that. In fact, I've got, I've got baseball questions for you. So we're going to get around to that sometime Q2, Q3, something like that. We're going to start the show as we usually do for the last year and a half with a little COVID conversation. Um, we thought for a moment that this was going to fade away, um, this part of our show, that is, and that doesn't seem to be the case. I come to y'all with a question this time. Instead of just asking what caught your eye, I, I really want to understand things better. And, and I have found over the last year and a half that talking with y'all has helped me understand things better. So my question for you is right now, at this moment in the pandemic, what's the most important uncertainty or what's the most important question you think out there about the pandemic? I'd like to hear something from everybody. I've been kind of pondering it myself, but I'll admit to being, I feel a little bit foggy about it at this point. So I thought maybe hearing from y'all would be helpful. Eric. So for me, the biggest story of course is the vaccine. And what I want to understand is um, how the protection from the vaccine varies as, fu- as a function of how long it's been since you had your shot. But mm-hmm. I want to understand it differentially by outcome. Like, I want to understand, so, you know, people have said, well, it wanes after six months, eight months. Well, is that protection against death and hospitalization? Is that just protection against getting symptomatic? Is that protection against uh, catching the virus and being someone that can infect other people? So I want to see those curves And that would be interesting to me because then all of us could decide, hey, you know what, maybe I don't need a third shot at six months or eight months. I could then wait, trade off the balances because for me, I think for many of us, I don't want to speak for everybody, for many of us, the protection against hospitalization and death is the thing we care about the most. It allows us to lead our lives in a certain way. And if those curves stayed extraordinarily high as they've been, then yes, I would get a third shot and I have every intention of it, but how in a rush I would be, I think would be impacted. So that's the, that's, those are the curves I want to see. That's my biggest uncertainty. Good. So let's stay with that for a second and we'll, we'll continue to collect questions from the rest of the guys, but let's just, let's talk about how that might be answered. We had Eric Topol on the show two weeks ago and his, he, he was kind of ranting a little bit appropriately. So ranting about the lack of data in the U S we don't have those curves in the U S because we stopped collecting the data. Right. So where, where, and when will we have those curves? When do we, when do we have the answer to Eric's question? Do you guys have any insight? Kate, I don't think we're going to have the answer to the question. If you want it to be from U S data, okay. we just don't get it. And, and we're not going to what, you know, when Eric was on, he was ranting about our inability to collect it nationally, but that's just that we're just not going to happen before the pandemic is over. Um, yeah. I think we have to look towards other countries that collect much better data. Um, I think that the Delta variant is not the variant that the design that the vaccine was designed to protect against in fully. And so if you look at what you're seeing in other countries, it 
doesn't prevent you from getting so, the infection. You mean, that, you mean that like technically and specifically, like it literally. Technically and specifically, uh, right. Right. So it's designed to. What way? Well, just to add one thing to what Adi's saying. Remember, um, I don't remember if it was Eric that said this or our guest last week who said this. Um, the, the, uh, uh, the inoculation, why can't I think of the word? The uh, vaccination. <laughs> the vaccination was meant to protect, in some sense, the lower airways, meaning the lungs, etc., not as much the upper airways, etc. So the idea here is that the Delta variant is much more contagious, as Adi said. It's much more, uh, you get higher viral loads, but that doesn't mean it's going to get into your lungs more. It doesn't mean it's going to get into your respiratory system more in a way that puts you into the hospital. And so that's, I think, specifically one of the ways in, t- one of the ways in which it okay. wasn't designed for that. You know, but I think you're talking phenotypically using the technical term for what you observe. Um, I think genetically the virus was designed, the vaccine was designed to attack that spike protein um, in the in the alpha or the original variant. And the Delta variant is a little different. The spike protein is still retained, which is why I think it's still an effective uh, vaccine against serious illness. And you're just explaining exactly why. But if you look at other countries, you see that the act that the protection from getting sick if you're exposed is still there. It's just not 95% like it was in the original vaccine. It's probably closer to somewhere between 40 and maybe 85%. Um, how that varies, I don't know. But you're and what's your definition of getting sick, sick at all or getting very yeah. sick? No, no, no. Just getting an active, uh, getting positive. That's it. Not, not sick, just getting positive. So I'm hearing, and you probably are as well, hearing lots of people who are getting, um, returning positive. Some with no symptoms, many of them with just short, you know, couple of days of fever, maybe a day of fever, headaches, and just out. None of this, uh, very, very, very rarely do they see a severe case that requires hospitalization. One of our friends from, from Wharton, who isn't at Wharton anymore, he was out for about a week. Uh, he described it as just a really bad flu, um, wasn't hospitalized. And I think that's what, I think we know that, that the, new, the vaccine um, doesn't prevent you from getting an active case. What it seems to really do is still prevent you overwhelmingly from getting a serious case. Um, the data from countries that do have accurate information suggests that it's about 90%. I think it's more like 95 to 98% for younger people. Extremely well, effective. Yeah, that's still. the number. You brought, up a, you brought up a great point, Adi, about the comorbidities matter. It's not just age, mm-hmm. but comorbidities, et cetera. So you're even asking for something, you know, I, since I got greedy and asked for data we'll probably never have in the U.S., why not get greedy and look at those curves by age yeah, by, sure. you know, uh, by comorbidities, by all kinds of things. Uh, why don't we call that a probability model? And why don't we see if we can estimate right. that model? Because there's going to be thousands of curves. And just to correct slash clarify, Audi, when you said it doesn't protect against, you mean it's only 50% prevent, like protective. Yes, that's right. Against getting protective. infected. Yeah, that's right. Right. And it's 50%. like still 99% protective against hospitalizations or any more dramatic of an outcome. Well, that depends on age. Um, so it's, it's like, for example, among younger people, there might be a half a case out of 100,000 among the vaccinated and maybe 20 out of 100,000 among unvaccinated. It's tiny all around, by the way. Um, for older people, it might be 500 out of 100,000 um, cases um, uh, per month, maybe do- during the pandemic, whatever your time scale is, and only about 50 among the vaccinated out of 100,000, obviously so- much larger. 
So to what extent is this information we've just been hashing over the last minute or two different from what we thought? Because it seems to me that you're saying things that we've kind of been saying for a little while, at least for the last month or so. Once we kind of learned that it's not as protective against the Delta as it was the previous, but we've been kind of hovering around that 40 to 80, 60% kind of protection, very good against hospitalization. We've been hovering with that story for a while. Have we not? Have we learned have we learned anything or well, is it just kind I, of become clearer? I'll, I'll say the thing that I think is one of the most uncertain things about Delta and the, and, and the vaccines is, you know, we've, we've, we've already said that, like, it, you know, it looks like it's about 50 percent. You know, it's only about 50 percent effective in terms of like I'm vaccinated, whether or not I get a COVID infection. And it's very it's still I, I still feel very protective in the 90 plus range against hospitalization and death having been vaccinated. Um but it's really the extent to which I, as a vaccinated person, carry viral load and can still, to the extent that I can pass it on to other people. And I think that, I think, is the uncertainty that, I, that popped into my mind when you brought up your question is I would like to know, because I, I feel having been vaccinated, I feel pretty safe for myself, basically, that okay. I, I think the vaccine does a great job protecting myself, especially in my comorbidity and age bracket. But, you know... The uncertainty I would like personally is how the extent to which I'm actually the vaccine has protected and continues to protect me against transferring, you know, it if I happen to get infected to somebody else. Right. And I do think there is evidence that that is more likely with the Delta than with the other. Right. Eric, yeah, no, I think. Well, I th- no, I mean, the fact that, well, I mean, yeah, I mean, obviously the Delta is going to give me a greater chance of passing on to somebody because it's it, it first first order because it gives me a greater chance of being infected myself than the original variant. You know, the vaccine does not protect as much against Delta from my own infection. And if I'm not going to, me not getting infected definitely is the greatest protection I have against passing it on to somebody else. So, you know, the fact that Delta reduces that uh, is bad, but whether or not there's this second order effect of like, it is, you know, it kind of conditional on being infected it is more likely because it's more infectious to be passed on to somebody else. I think that kind of that calculation or that probability is I, still very unknown, I think, or pretty uncertain. All right. Well, somewhat related. I saw an article in the National Geographic of all places recently that cited a new study. The study is done by some folks uh, up in Wisconsin. Shedding of infectious SARS-CoV-2 despite vaccination when the Delta variant is prevalent. And what they're finding is that the, it's still growing as much in people's noses, essentially, whether they're vaccinated or unvaccinated. Yeah, that was my point, right? Yeah, that was my point from earlier. But I think just to build on what exactly what Shane said, I think there's no uncertain, not, not none, less uncertainty for me in the following sense. Do I believe that because of the Delta variant, I personally have less protection, as does everybody, in terms of getting a positive case. Yes, I believe I have less protection. I think that's pretty well documented at this point. And Adi put some error bounds on what that effect size is, but it's lower. It's it's not 90 something percent, which it was for the alpha variant. Do I believe that I can spread it more easily to somebody, partly because of my answer to the first question, but just in general, Yes, I believe I can spread it more easily to other people. What exactly that ratio is, I'm not sure. But I think I'm not sure right now. I'm less likely to be a spreader given, i use Shane's words, that I have it. If I've gotten it, and let's take an unvaccinated person that's gotten it, 
I'm not sure my probability of spreading is that much less than theirs. Then the third piece is, I also believe there's a dramatic, there's a lot of evidence to suggest there's still very strong protection against hospitalization and death, even for against the Delta variant. So I don't think those things, by the way, are being discussed as that uncertain right now. That's my opinion. Okay. Well, uh, let me let me address them. I actually don't. I think there's still a lot of uncertainty about how much transmission a vaccinated person um, brings. And because I just saw another study that suggested that it's not not that much, and others, it's, I think it's I think that's going to be something that I'm kind of with Shane on that. I want I think that there's more information that's going to come, and we're going to learn a lot more about it. I was just saying I mean, it's more so than I believed before. I'm not, yes, and, and possibly, true. possibly the same amount as an unvaccinated person, both conditional on them having it. But you're saying that's uncertain. I'm sorry, but I'm going to get to what I'm going to get to my answer to Shane to to Kay's question in just a second. But I wanted to throw out one thing that's really kind of I think quite important. Um, In the original studies, it showed about a 95 percent, 90 to 95 percent decrease in the probability of of or the rate at which which um, you're getting active cases, and they were essentially seeing no serious illnesses at all in the vaccinated group. So we were just kind of going nearly 100 percent protectiveness. If you look at the data now, when you have, you know, obviously millions of people taking the vaccine and now the protections have gone down, you think of it as a, as a twofold uh, event. First, there's the probability of getting it and then conditional that you got it. What's the probability of a serious case? We know what the product of those two numbers is because and that varies by age group. But overall, it's around um, it's around point uh, one. In other words, the, the, uh, it's about 10 times less likely of getting seriously ill. That's the product. The question is, how does it split up into the two pieces? And if you take the active case measure as the estimate of that first term, it looks like it's about three to one and then four to one, three to four to one. In other words, you're three times less likely to get it. And then if you got it, you're about three to four times less likely of being a serious illness. And that when you multiply one third times one third or one quarter gets you to around around 10 percent. We were hoping for much stronger results than that. We were hoping for about a one in 20 in the active case and then essentially you know, another right. factor of one in 10. Uh, and, the, and that doesn't seem to have played out. It's the product of those two terms that produces about one in 10 for older, older people, and maybe about one in 20, one in 30 for, for younger people, just as, as one, you know, and so I, and that's where we're getting, that's where we are now. So if you get COVID, I still think you're, you're very, on, on a young person, you're originally very unlikely to get hospitalized, one in 100. Now that number is probably down closer to one in 400 or one in 500. I, maybe maybe I'm uh, I've I've already confused myself then because again so be- before the, the kind of thing we were all pretty confident about or the the, the statement you made before is that the the vaccine is currently only about fifty percent effective against the Delta. I'm getting it. Uh, I think it's about sixty percent. It's a range between fifty and eighty five. No one knows exactly. Okay, so well, I was just, I was but, but, but a then you just around. mentioned that like you're three to four times. You you think it decomposes this this. 10% decompose into three or four times less likely to get it. Yeah, uh, maybe it's um, one and two, wait, maybe it's well, one and three, can, I don't know. Y'all are confusing yeah. you with three or four times less likely. Can we say one third is likely or one fourth is Right, likely? that's probably easier. Just say one third. You're, you have one third the probability. One okay. third is two to one. Um, so, but these are just ballpark estimates. But really what I'm, I'm arguing is that if you do get sick, you're, you're, you're multiple times less likely to have been hospitalized than you were before. That base probability for a young person was very low to start with. And now it's, it's a factor of three or four times lower than that. And that's why we're sort of discounting that as a concern. Um, but I'm going to get to your answer to your question, Kate. Um, so really, my question. Buddy, one, one clarifying yeah. question for you about that. 
there seems to be lots of news reports about young people in the hospital. And there are. Sure. That's not a news report. That's, it's a fact. Okay. So they're not the, vaccinated. Generally. This, is what I'm, this is what I'm going towards. Let's assume that's a fact and not an anecdote. Say that that is higher. What explains that? Uh, what explains the fact that young people are, well, there are a greater percentage of the people that are hospitalized than before because they're the, they're the ones who dominate the unvaccinated ranks. So, by a large fraction. By a long shot. So when you just talk about the percentage of people who are hospitalized that are younger, that's probably twice as big now than it was before. And that has nothing to do with, with the virulence of the disease. It just has to do with the distribution of who's taking the vaccine. It's been attributed um, in many number. news sources to the Delta variant, but I think Audie's right. I think it's mostly just yeah. about the changing kind of demographics, basically, of who's getting infected. To base no, rate. Also, you have a you have a giant country of 340 million people in this country, just a, a smaller country like Israel, which tracks everyone as 8 million people. They have, I think, three hospitalizations currently under 30, and, and all, all three unvaccinated. Um, two under age 12 and one between 20 and 29. They report this. They break this out. Um, it's a very rare thing for someone under 30 to be to be hospitalized. Okay. Between 50 and 59, our age group, gentlemen, except for, Shane, except for you, Shane, they have nine currently. Okay, you're asking two different questions, which is I think that's a really important point, which is subtle. One is, are there more young people that are being hospitalized than before? That's true because of the Delta variant. Now, a separate different question is, are there more young people than old people? And that's where you have to take in the relative proportion of vaccination rates. So those are two different statistical questions. But there's no doubt the higher, as Adi was saying before, the higher transmissibility and the higher severity rate of the Delta variant among younger populations is leading to more young people being hospitalized. There's no doubt about it. Okay. Moving to Adi answering the I want to ask, question, which is, what's the yeah, greatest I, in your mind outstanding about COVID right now? Okay, I want to know the answer to this question, which is, uh, I'll try to phrase it in terms of um, countries, but I'm really asking a statistical question. Why is it that we see such incredible diversity across states, countries, and countries? And you'd like it to be an easy answer. Oh, it's vaccination rates, but it's not that simple, and I can't, and I can't use vaccination rates to explain it. So I'll give you a couple examples. We all see things going crazy in Mississippi, Florida, Alabama. We'd like to blame it on vaccines. But we saw a big explosion in, in Britain in the number of cases. And they had that wasn't the vaccine was not the problem. And in, and in Britain, um, they had a very low rate of deaths and very low rate of hospitalizations. In Israel, also very high vaccination rates, very high, at least as comparable to Britain, if not higher. Many uh, same basically rate of infection as Britain had, but is seeing far more serious cases in, in, in Israel. So much so, I just got a text saying their hospitals are turning anyone away um, who isn't corona or in serious, in very serious need of medical attention because they're, they're in that baddish condition. Um, and I want to understand what is causing this diversity. Is it behaviors? Is it masking? Is it, is it age of vaccine? What is explaining this variant? No, I mean, I, I take my first order, my first order guess at the dominant variant, variance component for between country variation is yeah. uh, demographic, like the age distribution of the country's population. So, you know, Africa not getting slammed by it. I mean, it's, I mean, no vaccinations in Africa, very, very, uh, presumably, you know, not, not great terms of hospital infrastructure and stuff like that, but age, you know, there are 
basically we have learned throughout COVID that this is something that mostly hits old people hard. And they're just is not that kind of proportion of the population there in, in Africa and some of the well, other. Okay. So that's, there. that's a, a great uh, parsimonious explanation. To what extent does it shed light on Israel versus UK hospitalization rates? I'd have to kind of, I, I don't know enough about the age distributions of those two. It, it, I, I would only say this is one component. I mean, I guess one, what yeah. I, I'm asking, if we fit a regression model, basically um, with whatever COVID outcome we wanted and we threw in age distribution as, as a set of variables, and we threw in vaccination rates as a set of variables, and we threw in, I don't know, you know, some kind of like, you know, variables related to average kind of age spread, of like the vaccine, climate. like how many months, how many months, you know, et cetera. Um, I wonder how much of the variation, the between country variation we'd be able to absorb with all of the, those three or four factors together. I would, I would still but, guess it's probably only like, you know, 60 or 70%. You know, so Britain, for example, and, and we talked about it in our show a couple of weeks ago, they had a spike in cases comparable to where they saw in the in the biggest spikes previously. But they had a tiny fraction of hospitalizations and um, deaths. Israel is seeing a spike comparable to what they saw in its earlier stages. And they have about one quarter the death and hospitalization rates. But that's not it's many times what what England's was so much so that England has essentially gone back to normal. Um, they still have a lot of cases, but they're just saying we're not seeing the hospitalizations or or deaths, and we're just running our country back the way we were. What are the possible? How bad? W- oh, sorry, Craig, but I, the question I guess I have is how bad was uh, uh, Israel's the first wave kind of through the original variant for Israel? Pretty like in bad. terms of deaths I mean, and hospitalizations, you think, it, you think it took a bigger toll the first time, so it takes a softer toll this time? Yeah, or, or the other way around. The other way around in the case of Israel. I mean, the UK got yeah, was yeah, one of the countries right. like America that got slammed very hard in the first wave. And just there's perhaps less kind of substrate for that high hospitalization yeah. and death toll, even even with Delta's increased transmissibility, et cetera, um, this time around. Just so people know, by the way, just so people know the numbers, by the way, the number of deaths per day in the U.S. is back over a thousand a day. So let's be clear that when we were, at least according to the CDC website yesterday, I was on the CDC website. So just to um, give people perspective, you know, we had always tried to norm this against the flu where Adi informed us 18 months ago that, you know, I don't know, 30 to 50,000 people a year die from the flu. That's roughly 100 a day. Well, we're at 10 times that. And so, and by the way, at the peak, we were at about 3,000 times that, actually, uh, uh, sorry, 3,000 deaths a day. So the part I always like to think about is when I take the curves that the CDC has, I draw a horizontal line and try to go backward in time and say, when were we at a situation, by the way, it's in about February of this year, where we're having the same number of cases that we're having now. When do I have to go back to in time to have the same number of deaths to which I have right now. And I'm not saying that means the future curve is going to look like that, but from a purely death and cases point of view, we're basically about seven to eight months back to where we were. True, Eric, but the, the daunting thing about that is that we were on the way down at that point. I know. We're on the way up at this point. So Absolutely. I just, I want to clarify one thing about the flu deaths. Yeah, we get 30 to 50,000 in a typical year, but they're concentrated in about four months. So it's not yeah. a, it's, you can't the say it's, per during day the flu, flu season, it is, it's probably about during flu season is, is, yeah, 
exactly. But, but, and, but it, but it is, it's a sobering number to hit a thousand. And obviously, I mean, we remember when we were hitting above three because we were talking about losing the number of people per day from COVID that we lost on 9 11, 3,300 or whatever that number is, just over 3,000. Um, and, and, we, and we got to that point, if I remember correctly. So uh, Shane, before we leave it, I just want to give Shane props for giving very boring explanations for why the, the, the national differences. It's always, that's something we try to preach on this show a little bit. The, the start with the boring explanations. People want to tell stories. People want to get real cute. And if you can bring the you know, basic base rates and demographics to explain these things, it's more parsimonious and therefore more likely to be true. So props to Shane in Q1 for bringing some boring statistical explanation. Shane. All right, Shane, do you have an answer to my first question? There's uncertainty that you think, or maybe you already gave that kind of. A well, I mean, it kind of was did. like, it was really kind of about like the vaccinations and the extent to which the, the, the transmit, the effect of transmission, like me as a vaccinated person, am I less likely to okay. conditional on being infected, transmit to somebody else than an unvaccinated person? Okay. I think that that's the harder thing to kind of measure directly because as Audie kind of pointed out, there's a confounding of a couple different kind of things in there, basically. Yeah. It's hard to direct. I mean, uh, Cade, before you answer your question, your own question, which I'd like you to, I want to ask you something very, very practical. Uh-huh. Do my students really need to wear a mask when they ask a question in my class? Is that having any impact at all? Or yeah, is that I, just something that's I, annoying I, me? <laughs> yeah, Adi, I think you're going to have to buckle up on that one, buddy. I hear you that it's annoying, but... Um, I can't hear them. <laughs> well, well, so we've got to no, no, no food can be consumed in, inside of a building. Utterly for the next reachable four policies. And if, yeah. y'all, if y'all saw the notes from from the from the folks this morning, was it that that we've had we've had students in class for like a week already, a solid week, brand new students from all around the world and no in-class transmission. And I think that's pretty remarkable. And it's hard. It's hard to not give some credit to the policies, the no eating policies and the full mass policies. Well, it goes back to audio, your point, which is these things multiply. So now you have, let's say you have the, you have the probability of some transmission without mask and now, and no vaccination. Now these people are vaccinated or they're being tested. And now you multiply that by mask, which also has to cut down the probability. So it has to, it has to cut it down above and beyond. You're you're absolutely right. All these things are true, but I I reject a no control group, you know, inference. And if we had half our classes where the students were allowed to take their mask off when they asked the question and put it on again, and if those had breakouts and the ones who didn't, we'd have something to go on. Speaking of a practical question, do you volunteer to be the professor in the no mask situation with seven? I don't want no mask. I just want my students to be able to take their mask, put it down below their chin when they ask a question and put it back up. So I can hear or, that. Or, and and I, I'll, 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 I'll ask it a different way. I, I, I'm not, a, I'm with you guys on this one, but like, I'll ask it. Different Who's way. you guys? It, with, you guys being, there? I guess, Kate now. I mean, I, you know, Matt might as well use Matt, you know, it can't hurt other than the inconvenience. I think so it could help significantly, I'm, but keep going. But uh, the scenario where it would not help significantly is if we had a student population that was required to mask when they came to class but then was not, you know, masking at all otherwise. And they were spending their outside of class time indoors, socially interacting. Which anyway, they are. Which they are. Then what does masking, uh, you know, if, if they're, they're basically exposing them to each other, like enough to pass on the disease socially 
outside of class anyway, I'll, I'll is there an, going to be a substantive well, not effect? Not to me. Not to me. I'm not with them socially right. outside. Number one and number two. You're, you've been our guy, Shane, Mr. Heterogeneity. Yeah. There may be, th- I'm making a number up, 30% of the student population that doesn't choose to participate in those events. Yep. And now they're being forced to be subjected to this increased frequency. And so you protect the people that are the most conservative. And that yeah. is my, and I think that is the right thing from a policy point of view. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's an excellent answer. I, don't, I can't argue with that. Well, well you asked me what, what, I, what I would like to know the answer to, and I would like to know the answer to that question. Now, I'm not asking you to change your policy. I just want to know the answer. And if you could tell me the answer to that question, I would be, I would be grateful if the answer turns out to be that actually it doesn't change anything in any substantive way if people lowered their mask to ask the question and put it back on after they finished. Now I'm curious about the question of whether you're ever going to adapt to the current environment and not rail against it for the entire semester as you. And I'm happy, Adi, with the probability (laughs) is certainly no higher. I'm happy with it goes. It's going to go in one direction, and we can debate of how much it goes down, if at all. Considered an opportunity to learn a new technology. You're going to have to learn new classroom technology. (laughs) Adi just put a mask on. Okay, Uh, my answer. I'm, I'm going to ask. I'm going to answer it in a very um, unsophisticated way because that's not a mechanism. Y'all are answering, y'all are asking good mechanistic questions. I'm just curious what the impact of school is going to be, especially in these communities that have so much anti-vax, anti-mask attitudes. It's hard, and especially given the possibility, even the probability that asymptomatic or even vaccinated folks are going to be spreaders, the, the likelihood of the collateral damage, staff, faculty, families of staff and faculty seems very high. And um, I'm curious, I'm, 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 I'm curious and worried about what that's going to look like as we, as they all come back in school, as they're doing right now in all these deep South states that have had so much trouble in broader community. Yeah. I mean, I think you, you brought it up, Kate, which is there will be greater significantly greater, in my view, viral spreading. And now the question is, who gets impacted by that? So what I'm not okay with is, uh, for example, we still don't, uh, people under 12 can't be vaccinated. And I understand there's, and I'm with Adi, there's extremely low base rates of serious illness to them. But there could be, there will be a larger number of people affected in that population than if there were masks versus not. Those people don't have a choice to protect themselves at the moment with vaccines. Um, People that are uh, immunocompromised will be affected. Um, People for religious reasons who choose not to get vaccinated will be affected in a larger way. So to me, I less worry about, and I don't mean this from a you know, philosophical point of view, I less concern myself personally with people who have chosen not to get vaccinated, but there's a large group of people that don't have that choice and those people will be affected. And the degree to which it is, I don't know. But, you know, we even we've heard from all of our experts, this Delta variant will find the weakest link. So it'll spread from group to group. So maybe children give it to each other. Okay, so they don't necessarily go to the hospital, but then a parent goes to the hospital or an elderly person who, despite being vaccinated, you know, as Adi said, there's a more uh, there's a there's an increase in rate of even hospitalization given vaccination. So that's what I'm concerned about, is that we will get greater spreading and it will find these weaker populations. 
Yeah. So one one thing worth noting, I guess, thinking about the fall is how much this will be a regional thing. That's that there's such yeah. a heterogeneity, obviously, yep. in vaccination rates and also in compliance with every other kind of non-vaccination and indoor outdoor and indoor outdoorness and indoor outdoor so i i kind of wonder i mean i agree that there's going to be a lot of tragic i I think there's going to be a lot of you know extra extra avoidable uh hospitalizations and deaths i just don't know how regional that will be good good question we we have to head out but i want to make the note that the fda did finally approve the pfizer vaccine and i think i've been slow to realize the import of that it sounds like there are many organizations that were reluctant to impose requirements on their employee or staff or student or whatever until the official approval came in. The emergency approval wasn't enough for them for liability reasons or whatever. And now we're going to see more restrictions and prohibitions and requirements than we saw mandates, before. like mandates. kind of private mandates as opposed yep. to public ones. Yep. 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 The, the next big issue is going to be booster shots. My my yeah, my 19 year old daughter just got a, a request to come in for her booster shot in Israel. There we go. Okay, we're going to have that conversation. I'm sure we'll have the conversation for multiple weeks going forward. All right, guys, Q1 is in the books. We still have three. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. You guys can join us in a way. We'd love to have We'd love to hear from you. You can hit us up on Twitter. Probably the single best way to reach out at W Moneyball at W Moneyball is our handle on Twitter. We follow all of our guests. We treat tweet periodically and we get questions and ideas from you guys. So let us hear from you. You can also drop us an email. It's our mailbag and we read them all and we get as many of them as we can on the show, but we certainly read them all and we love hearing from you. Our mailbag, the email address is moneyball at wharton.upin.edu. Moneyball at wharton.upin.edu. I believe it's also on our Twitter page. If you didn't have something to write that down, you can pick it up on uh, maybe the pinned tweet at the top of that feed. Guys, we've got a few sports going. I have to say, I had a moment here in the last couple of weeks where I kind of missed June. I just think that early summer this year with the Stanley Cup playoffs, the NBA playoffs, the Euro championships, the golf, these multiple major golf tournaments. I mean, there, there was a real peak in sports, a, a weird for me, peak early summer. And now we've been, now it's kind of a different vibe. This is more like a ramping up or ramping up into college football or ramping up into baseball playoffs. Um, so pro football, I mean, I mean, I mean, pro football, go out, give away my, give away my bias, <laughs> ramping up pro football and college football. But I know y'all are excited about baseball, especially because the Yankees are finally playing up to their payroll. So a question for y'all. Some people must have modeled this, but there's st- the non-stationarity in Major League Baseball. How much do you discount what happens in May and June? It feels to me like season after season, you start, you don't really know who's serious until August. And maybe some people have dug themselves into holes that they're going to have a tough time getting out of, but I don't know whether it's some teams just take a while to get together. Or it's just plain old non-stationarity. That's just that, that there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a decay in the history's ability to predict what's going to happen. What's your sense? And y'all have a very pretty story here because the Yanks have looked kind of whatever all year. And then now they're looking like gangbusters. 
I, I mean, I, you know, I, I think, you know, if, if you took like, I mean, we always sort of say that you need at least, I would say like a third of um, a third of a season to even start and, you know, thinking about who the good teams are or not. I mean, I guess that, that would be in the absence further, of Shane, I feel like you can just lop off the first third and forget it. Well, no, I, I mean, I mean, you, you point to the Yankees, certainly they were up and down, but there's, I mean, don't discount, don't discount the teams that are consistent. I mean, there are teams that are essentially consistently great throughout the year. I mean, the Dodgers have always been good. We wouldn't want to, wouldn't, wouldn't have wanted, you know, this entire season. I wouldn't lose anything by draw you know? by, by at least discounting it. I want to give it less. I want to give it less, less than. Well, half. I mean, certainly you should give. Yeah. I mean, you know, as far as you should give less weight to the early season compared to the late a lot season. Less weight. Like I want to go um, under, but I, I would say it. no, I, I would, I would, I would caution against zero weight. But I mean, those games still do count towards the. I will go closer to zero than yeah. full. Closer to zero than full. Adi, you know, I, I think the difficulty, of course, in this season is that you know five, ten games can make a huge difference in the standings, and there are a lot of teams that are in that kind of contention. Maybe in every in every division, most of them at least, there's two or three kind of vying for the, the wild card spot or the or the or the top spot. It, but I think in the, the first third of the season, you can broadly uh, divide the teams into three groups. And that middle group, you know, top, bottom, and middle, the middle group you're very confused about. But top and bottom, I think by the first or the third, you got pretty clear. Um, and, and the problem, of course, is that middle group. And the Yankees were, were looking like a middle team. Correct. And we just couldn't figure that out. I mean, how could the Yankees, with its $200 million payroll and its terrific, uh, you know, ability – so be so mediocre and even if you look at their record now they're they're not that many uh they haven't scored that many runs than they've allowed unlike say the blue jays who are, i was, gonna say, who I, I was just gonna, I was just gonna bring points, up you know, the runs. yankees and the astros have yeah. exactly the same record right now that's right yeah. and the yankees are plus 47 and the astros are plus 178 you don't mind that's run right. differential run differential and about 10 if you want to kind of get a rule of thumb each 10 in run differential on average is about a win. Well, there's <laughs> 130 it. difference and they have the same That's record. Right. That's right. Yeah. And I mean, I, I like your kind of discretization if you will. into bins, the sort of like bad, you know, bad middle and good teams. And I guess to return to Cade's kind of assertion before, I think even after a third of the season, if you were to classify teams into the bad middle and, and, and good, you know, in the remainder of the season, there's still predictive power to those categorizations, even after a third of a season, because I think you, you do see teams moving from the middle to the good or the middle to the bad or the bad to the middle or the good to the middle. But, but you, you can't jump see. right from bad. You can't jump from bad to good all the and way. And you don't see you don't see good going to bad either after. a third. Yeah. So so you're only allowed to kind of move one category away from your. <laughs> First this, half this, first this, this, this is why we're here, Phil. This kind of sophisticated well, analysis is what we bring to the audience. Eric. The only, the only difference I was going to say, I have a different point to make. The only point I was going to make on what uh, Shane and Adi just said is the Padres may change that rule of thumb. The Padres were extraordinarily good. Yeah. They're 68 and 58 right now, 13 games back of the Giants. I'm not sure if my life depended on it. I'd bet on the Padres ending up over 500 for the season. 
But they, even not just under 500 would still have them in the middle group. I mean, I'm talking about that. Yeah, oh, you mean overall, you mean cumulatively. Yeah. You mean you can cumulatively. move down, you can move up, but not all the way from good to bad. I like bad Eric's point. Eric's saying, well, you're kind of you're kind of privileging the argument too much. By the way, I like I like the point. It's a good yeah. one. But Eric's Eric's saying, well, of course they can't move all the way down because you're using your cumulative record. But if you were going right. to re-bend them for the last third, what if we rebend them using only the last third of the oh, season? Oh, yeah, you know. That, you would that, find some teams that move two bends. That's Absolutely. Totally true. But, I mean, that was my original point is that those wins and losses they had in the first third still they, count they make it towards where they're at at the That's end of the right. season. Okay, so there no, is no. almost let, a, let, a structural constraint on how much they can move. Let, let, me, let me just refine that a little bit. I mean, while it's possible, I think that it's not only rare, but when it does happen, it happens for cause. Take a, a team like the Nationals, which was clearly in the middle and not after the first third of the season, not bad, not good. Yeah. And they fire sale. You know, they got rid of their players yeah, and, yeah, right, and now they're right. now they're awful. So yeah. and so <laughs> that's the non-stationarity part. Um, and then you take teams like the Dodgers that picked up <laughs> Nationals fire sale and they've gotten better. And the Yankees picked up a couple of, of new players um, in an effort to get better. And then, of course, that's that's, of course, team composition, which is non-stationary by by construction. But then you also have player non-stationarity, which in baseball is an absolutely certifiable thing. And whether it's game to game or over the course of the season, there is definitely uh, players do go into shifts. Um, it's not like hotness in the in the in the classical sense of hotness. Like my previous start, uh, start was good, so I'm I'm, I'm confident. But it's it's definitely whether it's health or exhaustion or the weather or or a bunch of other factors that I can't explain. Players definitely get into um, uh, streaks, if you will, or stages where they're better. They're, they're re- it's regime. Work. It's regime. It's regime shift, not autocorrelation. So there's like categorically different level of performance, not a performance that is uh, dependent on the previous time's performance. These are just subtle distinctions, but important different models, right? And you're saying these are regime yeah, shifts. And, and it's and part of that, I think, with certain positions as well, it's also psychological. I mean, we know that psychology matters in sports. It's hard to quantify. We've quantified it in soccer penalty kicks. We know it, that really works there. I mean, I feel like Aroldis Chapman has just fallen apart, and and he was the he was the cause of many a loss on the Yankees' uh, um, close game kind of uh, you know mm-hmm. uh, record because he this guy was used to be lights out closer, and he couldn't find right. the plate. But let me ask you a question. So you know, let's look at the totality beyond just the record. If the playoffs started today, and the Yankees, which by the way they're not winning their division, so they'd be one of the wild card teams. If not they yet. were playing. At well, I said if it started today, if the Yankees were playing at Rays, at White Sox, and at Astros, who have basically comparable records to the Yankees within a couple of games, would you favor the Yankees in any of those series? Are you, you're assuming no. they just pace the Red Sox or A's in that wild card game? No, no, I assume I just, just in. No, 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 I'm not assuming that. I'm I was making a hypothetical. If the Yankees <laughs> were to play <laughs> any of the, by the way, I don't assume that. I don't know why the Yankees would necessarily beat the Red Sox in a so. wild card game. Derek Cole is why, but yeah. But no, it's no, exactly question. why the Yankees so beat the Red Sox. I, I think the answer game, is but. no. I think the Yankees, despite having won 10 in a row, and I'm Mr. Momentum and all this, all the statistics seem to suggest 
that the Yankees don't score enough runs. And my guess is if we broke it down differentially against good pitching versus weaker pitching, they perform even worse because there are a number of Yankee hitters, despite they hit a lot of long ball. So a lot of guys who can everybody in that Yankee lineup. Now that LeMahieu is not a 320 hitter anymore, everybody in that lineup can be pitched to. Yeah. And, and the I, good I mean, pitchers this is, will think- do it. This is the thing. I mean, you could probably make this argument about many, many teams that are in contention, but I think the Yankees are vulnerable to good pitching and they haven't faced a lot of good pitching in say the last 15 games or so. Cause I, I don't know how many times they played the Orioles and the twins and like, you know, these teams that they basically always beat. Um, but, um, but yes, well, I mean, beating they, the they, Braves they, yesterday was nice. No, and let's see what happens right. in the other tough games they have that's left. Right. That's right. So what about on the on the individual player front? You've already talked about the regime shifts. We we have some notable stats. So Miguel Cabrera just reached 500. Yeah. Yep. Wins. Congrats to him. Eric, you're always talking about your tiers in the Hall of Fame. Where do you have Cabrera in the Hall of Fame? It's interesting. I would have had him in one. Well, let's do remember. I'm pretty sure he's the one that won the Triple Crown, right? He was. Yeah. <laughs> and also, um, the other thing, I looked at an analysis that was done couple days ago that compared all the 500 home run hitters and tried to rank them against each other in terms of things like slugging percentage, uh, wins above replacement, et cetera. And there's 28, by the way, 500 home run hitters in the history of baseball and all time in baseball. And Miguel Cabrera, shockingly to me, is fourth. He's fourth in this list, in this ranking of 500 home run hitters. Now, let's be clear. He's not Babe Ruth. He's not Willie Mays, and I forget if it was, and he's not Ted Williams, but he was in that next cluster of people in terms of his performance. So if you had asked me, I would have said, and by the way, he's won, I think it's five home run crowns. I think he's won three batting championships. So people, that's what this analysis was looking at. He's not just a home run here. By the way, he's one of, I think, only four people with 500 home runs that has above a 300 lifetime batting average which is also extremely rare. So I would have said mid-tier until I started looking at his comparative analysis to other top home run hitters. I'm going to have to start inching him up into that top pantheon. He's, he's, he's pretty close in my view now to being a – he's certainly a first ballot Hall of Famer. He's no, a you do first think ballot Hall of Famer. First ballot. I, I do. I think he's – Yes, this is a nice contribution of a little quantitative analysis. Your eyes were opened by a light-handed, systematic quantitative analysis, and that's. I that's, would have said bad. mid-tier, but now I'm starting to think he's maybe in that top tier. Analytics at his best, uh, right there, Adi. What 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 exactly did they exclude from this? Um, it's not it's not a war calculation, I don't think, because I don't think he's much of a, a fielder. Um, but as a batter, he's, he really is top third among 500. I mean, absolutely, this guy could rake. Good point. They were looking at home run rate. They were yeah. looking at slugging percentage. They were looking at batting average. They were looking at – and by the way, I think you know he's about to become – probably won't be this year. I'm pretty sure he's about to join the 3,000 hit club. And so now you're putting him in the league with – you know, Babe Ruth didn't get 500 home runs and 3,000 hits. Now, he pitched a number of years. Ted Williams didn't. I mean, thank you for serving for six years in the military, or he would have had 800 home runs and 4,000 hits. But you're joining Willie Mays, Eddie Murray, Hank Aaron, 
and I forget who the four, maybe Rafael Palmero, but basically there's only been four or five guys. I mean, he's about to be in the 500 and 3000 hit club. That's remarkable. I mean, that's got to get you top tier. It just has to be 500 and 3000 and 300 batting average and a triple crown. The guy could hit. He just flat out could hit. So who of the younger guys, next generation guys, or even third after that generation guys, is most likely to reach that kind of tier? So obviously, uh, Cade knows that's exactly what I would be looking at, given he just got to 500. So here's the people that, and and, and Adi knows, there's a, a system where they project both Hall of Fame and who's reaching various milestones. Here are the top people right now they're projecting. The first one is Nelson Cruz. He's got 443 home runs. Now he's 41, but the thing is, he's still hitting at a very high rate. And he says he's going to play at least 45. <laughs> That's, That's what he says. <laughs> now, if he does, he'll easily get to 500. Next one is a guy that Adi and I have been very thankful for lately is Giancarlo Stanton. Stanton's got 332 home runs. You say, oh my God, that's 160 some away. Yeah, but he's 31 and he's got like an 80 year (laughs) contract. So, I mean, you know, he plays another five, six years, pops 25 a year. He gets the 500. A guy that all of us would love to see to get the 500. If he stays healthy, maybe 600 is Mike Trout. Mike Trout's got 310 home runs, but he's only, but he's only 30 years old. So seven or eight more years at 25 to 30 a year, he gets there. We need to go in like, we need to crowdsource some money and put him on a different team. No, no one wants to see him to play the second half of his career. For the yeah. But you know, basically, you know, basically, you know, there's probably, and that, that was another one. If it builds on your question, Kate, I think, and this is not surprising. Adi's been talking about this all season, home runs are up, you know, batting average down. I think you're going to see, you know, right now, I'm pretty sure the number is true. There's basically a semi-equivalent number of 300 win pitchers, 3,000 hitters, and 500 home run hitters. They're near within the same number. They're all somewhere in the mid to high 20s. I think mm-hmm. you're going to see 500 home runs go up. I don't think we're going to see another 300 winner in my lifetime. Never. And I think we will see 3,000 hits, but it won't go up as fast as the 500 home runs. Yep. I will you know, never see another 300 hitter. I can almost guarantee 300 that. win pitcher. You mean 300 win? Sorry, 300 win pitcher. Sorry. Yeah. The, the thing about so a forecast about Trout, he's at that, and, and also Stanton to I think to a lesser degree, but but I think in the same um, bin, 30 is that pivot point where yep they could have an absolute plummeting career that essentially goes mm-hmm. away, or they could stay at a high level for a long time. I mean, Hank Aaron is the quintessential. I mean basically performed at or at a, a peak level from the day he got up until the day he left at age 40. Um, you know, Ken 40 Griffey Jr. would be the canonical example and the other one that just, you know, Griffey Jr. is, is the other side. So yeah, people thought he was going to get to 800. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, he did. And, and so the question with Trout is, is what's he going to look like after he turns that corner uh, at, at 30, 31? I think John Carlo already looks, looks less than he was although he hit a home run by flicking his bat last night um, opposite field. Um, and he's just so monstrous that I, I do think he's a, I, I would give him a better chance of hitting 500 than Agreed. Trout um, because I think he's, uh, even though he's, his obliques always seem to, <laughs> to flare up every year. He doesn't seem to be. Well, let's talk about just one other person. 25. One other person we should talk about just quickly locally is Bryce Harper. Bryce Harper's more than halfway there and he's 28, he just turned 28. And we know he's got an 80-year contract as well. He's got, I think, another 10 or 11 years with the Phillies. So, but Adi, I, I could not agree with you more. As I was combing through the data, I was looking exactly at what you said. Early 30s is the inflection point. It's, it, I, you can't guarantee. Someone, Trout, you say, well, he's got 310. Age 30, of course he's going to make it. No, not of course he's going to make it. Absolutely not. 
we've talked a lot about sports science and conditioning on the show over the years. And we talk, especially in tennis about how guys play so much longer than they used to. Do we not expect some of the same benefits in baseball? Should we not see longer careers out of these guys than we used to for those same reasons? Well, I mean, longer careers than, you know, uh, the steroid era, when you say then we used to, you've got to exclude the steroid area because that was kind of like an artificial enhanced to the later years, right? Right. You kind of, you kind of mean relative to the Hank Aaron kind of generation or something like that or or earlier. Go back further than that. I mean, y'all, y'all, your your statistical comparisons of baseball are hundreds years old. So, yeah. I mean, compared to that, we have to see long. Also, Adi's a base rate guy. Here, I'm going to make the following base rates thing. If a guy between age 20 and 30, roughly, has averaged 30 home runs a year, I'm willing to make an assumption that they have a very good chance to average 20 home runs a year for the next 10. Well, that's going to get you to 500. And so that's my, if someone's on that trajectory, they're basically around 30 and they have around 300, I'm willing to give them greater than 50% chance of having 10 years of 20 each as an average. And I think that's what Adi's right. talking about. And that's what would get you there. I'm sure yeah, for a good guy, I mean, it's question. very early, but who that holds- guy is so young and hitting home runs at a crazy rate. Who are you talking about? Acuna? That- Acuna, yeah. So we've got an interesting list there. We ought to have those models. That's, you know, we're always projecting Hall of Fame once a year, but we can also project these uh, career totals. And this has been an interesting conversation, especially since we have so many exciting young guys, one of them locally, for the Phillies. All right, guys, uh, that's, that's a full quarter on uh, baseball, fellas. That's a full quarter on baseball. You might have something to only down the road. We have got two quarters to go. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Rolling into the third quarter now, another open lines segment. Remember, you guys can reach out and suggest topics or questions or complaints, whatever you got. Hit us up at Twitter, at WMoneyBall. At WMoneyBall is our, is our, is our handle up there. We've got uh, the whole team here, Shane Jensen, statistics professor. Audie Weiner, statistics professor. Eric Bradlow, stats and marketing professor. Cade Massey, practice professor, OID. Gentlemen, We've got the great sport of football kicking off soon. We've got football on TV. We have exciting plays happening. We have Jameis Winston bombing down the field with remarkable catches by his receivers. What are we to make of what we, other than just enjoying it? And we don't have all the quite as many trepidations about the season this year as we did last season, because we're at least a little bit more uh, reckless about COVID at the very least. What what should we learn about the NFL so far? What 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 do we know, Adi? What you like your new quarterback? You like Zach Wilson? Okay. Well, I, I'm going to ask a specific and then a general question. My specific question is, yeah, I like my new quarterback, Zach Wilson. He looked really good. But my second question is, what on earth does preseason mean? Is there a record? Do we have any data that suggests that good performance in preseason predict well in the future? Um, well, they don't obviously play all out. I mean, they don't want to kill each other. I don't know how that works. So, well, hold on. let's let's first say. Come on, guys. We shouldn't complain so much because we like having it on TV. Life is better with football on TV. The second thing is they've got to figure out a way to cut the rosters down, give them a chance, let them play some games. It's like glorified scrimmages out there. So we don't complain so much. That said, historically, some people have made too much of preseason. And then here come the analysts and say, it doesn't mean anything. Don't read anything into it. And now it seems like Eric has undermined, unmined some stats that suggest there is some signal. If you deal, if you dig in the right places, You've got some signals. So, Bradlow, tell us about these signals. 
Yeah, so I was just I was interested in that question, Adi. So here are the two stats that I've gotten. First, um, they've looked over a 10-year time period, and a team that wins its final preseason game, on average, wins 23% more regular season games. Now that adds up to about two games, you know, two to two or so games a year. The second stat I saw is let's assume that we know preseason's all funny games, but maybe the first half of preseason is not funny games. So let's just look at the first half of preseason games when maybe they're starting their starters more. Oh, be, be more precise. You mean the first half of a game in preseason? The first half of the game. Yeah. So let's take, let's say they played historically four preseason games. Let's take the point differential. It's what they did in the first half of those four games and correlate that with the point differential in the regular season. The correlation's 0.31. The p-value is 0.008 is the analysis that's been done. What was the regular season, DV? Point differential in the regular season. Oh, really? So okay. we're comparing point differential in the four first, in the four first halves yeah, of yeah, the yeah. preseason games with the point differential in the regular season, and the correlation was 0.31. That, that latter okay, so what is it? Means, means more to me than the first observation. I'm a little okay, So what is it in the, in, the, in the first two games of the season? If we did the same thing with the first two games of the regular season? Great question. Season, so they did that, that analysis, too. They did analysis for the first game, and that okay. correlation is about 0.2. So there's less. Well, it's only one game. Oh, so that the has first, only, only the first half of the first game or the whole first game? No, the whole first game. So there's more signal, Lottie, because there's more games would be the argument. There's, there's more, more games. I mean, I'm saying this correlation yeah. is 0.31. Look, all I'm commenting on is I was expecting these analyses to show very, very low signal or to kind of, I'll call it just cherry pick things. I don't know, the final preseason game to win percentage, that doesn't seem entirely cherry-picked to me. Or point differential to point differential. Not bad. I like the latter I also think we we don't want to overly focus on, you know, because the original question is, like, is there anything of prognostic or or value, like, you know, kind of like predictive value in preseason performance? And let's not overly focus on team-level performance because teams are, of course, employing all kinds of exploratory strategies in terms of who they're putting in and stuff like that. But uh, the question I kind of want is, is there anything to individual performance? Like, should – you know, somebody like Zach Wilson, is that going to have any predict what him having a good preseason? Does that have any predictive power so Shane, on his regular season? A- anecdotally, Kevin Clark, the, the, I think he's writing for the ringer. I forget who he writes for now, but great NFL writer. He's like, he just, I think it was Kevin who just posted this thing over the weekend. Someone was whinging about some rookie quarterback or they were praising him. I forget mm-hmm. which he's like, don't make me repost this and he reposted something from 1997 a headline from a preseason game in 1997 it feels too early is that not too early that could be the right year ryan leaf ryan leaf outguns oh. manning leaf well that was 97 or 98 yeah i forget which yeah. exact year that is no, no, right and i mean like obviously uh, you know I, there's gonna i i, I mean I, I think patrick mahomes had a terrible preseason the year before he went on you know his first kind of real regular season MVP, his MVP year too. I, I mean, anecdote, you can definitely come up with examples where there's, you know, obviously very well, little Shane, like, difference. Shane, both, it's just the first, question, both the examples we came up with were QBs. Is it harder yeah. for a QB to show early than a non-QB? I think uh, this is just my opinion. I think what Adi said is when you're drafting, and you've said this many times in our show, Kate, when you're drafting really high up in the draft and you're drafting a QB, you're, you've got to go for the high right tail. You've got to go for the franchise quarterback who's going to be absolutely fantastic. 
I don't know if Zach Wilson's going to be a Hall of Famer. I mean, let me just say, by the way, Aaron Rodgers said this guy can really throw the ball when the greatest quarterback, in my view, in my generation, I didn't say the greatest winner or champion. Aaron Rodgers, to me, is a better quarterback than Tom Brady, but we can debate that later. In terms of throwing the football, who throws a better – if you give them equal open receivers, who can throw the ball better? Oh, Eric, I think, not, but, but let's let me think... go back to my point. My point is, is that if you're a Jets fan, you have to believe that Zach Wilson at this point has high upside potential. You do. I've yet, as an example, though, you have more doubt. It's only preseason, but you have more doubt right now no. about Trevor Lawrence than you do about Zach Wilson right now. And so could Zach Wilson, there's nothing we've seen so far that doesn't suggest that Zach Wilson does not have the potential to be an upper, upper tier player. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think, fine, fine, my gosh, we should salt all these opinions right now, right? No, 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 no. But, but I, and I think I said potential. To the extent the preseason, I think, has predictive value. I mean, I think you can because you can play yourself out of even contention in preseason if you're that if you're really bad. I Absolutely. Mean, you want to at least acknowledge the kind of the, the hat that, you know, that there's a, that we've got kind of truncated observations here, right? I mean, you know, Christian Hackenberg, just to pull up another Jets legend, you know, played so badly in in practice and in preseason that he never even saw a regular season game. So I right. think you 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 you, you know. We, we, there is enough signal, at least in preseason, for some quarterbacks, whether it's real signal, maybe they could, maybe Hackenberg with a different team and more chances would have actually been a competent NFL quarterback, but he never became one because he played himself out of it. Look, the other guy, the other guy, of course, who, by the way, I just looked on my, it just popped up on my phone. The uh, Bears have decided to, decided to start the great Andy Dalton and not Justin Fields. Mm-hmm. Um, the, other, the other person I've seen that, again, shows me that potential is Justin Fields. That's the other guys. And by the way, I don't mean to suggest that Trevor Lawrence is not going to be fantastic or Mac Jones is not going to be fantastic. I'm saying the two people I've seen high upside potential from as of yet are are Justin Fields and Zach Wilson. So you just I think Shane just said the key thing when he was talking about Hackenberg. It's like what would have happened if Hackenberg had been on a different team? And if I'm going to make predictions about how these quarters are quarterbacks are going to turn out. I would love to, let's just get a market going on which of these quarterbacks is going to perform best in the first say two years. And the number one factor is what team he's with. And yeah. I would short Trevor and, just because he's and, down and there and with the urban Meyer. cycle. Yeah. And what, what's that Shane? And, and, and how they choose to, how patient they are with sort of their development and, yeah, and how what, kind yeah, of thoughtful they that's are. That's right. When I, I mean, say I think I don't just mean surrounding cast. Yeah. I mean, coach front office, everything. And I'm going to take I mean, I, I'm going to take Lance in San Francisco over and probably Zach Wilson under the new regime in New York over Trevor and Justin because just of the franchises are with. I'm sorry, makes a lot of sense to me. True, true enough. I mean, I will say in the case of Justin Fields, I actually do like Chicago kind of choosing. I mean, I think they're hoping to kind of follow the kind of Mahomes model with Justin Fields. Yeah, I mean, because quarterbacks that do start as rookies typically do not perform all that well in their rookie season. And they're often better off to kind of take that season to learn, to learn kind of the system under yeah. a veteran quarterback so just, leadership, yeah. which is what I think Chicago is trying to hoping to do perhaps with, you know, Andy Dalton in kind of place of Alex Smith, you know, with the Mahomes yep. analogy. So just, just quickly staying with our base rate guy, Adi Weiner, Adi. So um, obviously given the Buccaneers that they won the championship last year over the, 
greatest of all time, Tom Brady. I didn't say he's, he's the goat. I didn't say he's the greatest thrower of the football, but regardless, how much would you diminish? No one has won back-to-back championships, Adi, since Tom Brady and the New England Patriots in the 2004 season. Let's say someone said to you, the Buccaneers have a 15% chance of winning the Super Bowl. How much would you, any value at all, Adi, in the fact that no one has been able to do it for 17 consecutive years, and the only person to do it, I think, would have been in the last maybe even 25, 30 years would have been, I think John Elway won two in a row back in the late 90s with the Broncos and Tom Brady. And I think after that, had, Aikman, it was probably the, Cow- Aikman and the Cowboys, yeah. but that's 30 years ago now, yeah. Shane. So yeah. in the last oh, 30 yeah. years, this has happened twice. Yeah, I think an enormous amount has to be paid attention to that statistic, because essentially what that's saying is that the reason why you have a champion, which is always a mixture of skill and, you know, and, and luck, is a healthy comp- component of luck. I mean, not so far that it'll take a bottom team and make them win, but it, it, among the top teams, it makes it an, a possibility for all of them. And it, you just can't, there isn't that separation in skill, which would, which would have caused more top teams winning. So if someone said one and one and six, I would, I would cut that in half. And I mean, one in 10. Not so a, Adi, a couple of things you're giving the parsimonious explanation, which is the right place to start. We've already talked about that on the show. You're saying your first inference when you hear that stat is, there's a lot of luck who and who actually wins these things. That's your inference from there being. Oh, or, a, uh, let me, let no, me just uh, quantify that because when I say a lot of luck, that mm-hmm. could be because teams are all comparable, which means the only thing that can divide them is yes. circumstance. So, but there's a, there is a, there is a more complicated story here. And I actually like it in this case, even though generally we want to avoid the psychologically rich narratives. And that is. Player retention. There's some anti-momentum with Super Bowl. <gasps> what? Right? Yeah. Anti-momentum. And that, a couple of things. People get egos. Locker rooms get harder to manage. Guys get poached by other teams. You know, the things yeah, that, like Super Bowl MVPs get, you know, hired away inappropriately. So all of these things could create a force in the opposite direction. Again, it's a complicated narrative. And we're not yeah, supposed I, to I, like I, them, but I think there's something. No, like I, I, I really like that phrase because, I mean, t- Super Bowl winning and losing teams regress dramatically in their next season typically in part because and that regression is in part due to the luck that they had but it's also in part because of the success they had all their free agent you know their their players you know for super winning free agents get get the big contracts from other teams coaches get hired away etc and all that is to say that's the one kind of component that is in tampa's base favor yeah. is that they have kind of unprecedented retention they have not lost a single player or coach. not one not that's one single third. player and also also you know at the end of the day um they do have someone that's won seven Super Bowls. And I didn't even realize this. I know Shane has realized this. Forget the every other year thing, which is true. He, if he had retired at age 37, 38, which is when Elway retired, when Marino retired, et cetera, he would have had three Super Bowls, would have lost, not lost the Super Bowl, would have lost two in a row because he lost to the Giants. Yep. Um, and the Eagles. Sorry, he would have, no, no, the Eagles were later. He would have lost two. He would have been three and two in the Super Bowl by age 38. <clears throat> he's now 44 and he's seven and three. He's played in five Super Bowls since the age of 38. 
It's absolutely and won four of them. But it's absolute. And by the way, remember, I don't think he ever threw an incomplete pass the one he lost to the Eagles. He didn't lose to the Eagles because of his problem. He threw oh, for five hundred yards, three hundred five hundred five yards, and they never punted. I think in that game, except to the last, the last punt of the game. All I'm saying is, it's remarkable. I agree. So, Adi, now that I've told you that they've retained a hundred percent of their starters, and it's Tom Brady as their quarterback. Do you still have the same base rate chop pattern that you want to do? No, I just am reluctant to, to overthink narratives. And that's probably because I'm ignorant about football. Um, but I'm also suspicious because there's so many complications. You're giving me one side of it, right? It's the same team. But, uh, but I've been saying, I've been shorting Brady the last three years, <laughs> ineffectively, I'll have to say. But <laughs> age has got to catch up with this guy. And I have to tell you, I, I, I'm going to short it again. Um, yeah. It's a tough sport. I mean, I, I still have to pay attention to the fact that he's getting old. I mean, it's uh, as his, and so you got to give that a lot of and peace. Um, and maybe there's a reason for the, the, the why the team is still together. I, I don't understand it. Well, this gets back you, Adi, as well as you do. It's a perfect yep. seg, uh, that segue transition to what I put into our rundown this week, which is the top four teams in the NFL right now by everyone's measure. Here's their backup quarterback. Let's pretend there's injury. The Bucks' backup quarterback is Blaine Gabbard. That's a problem. The Packers' backup quarterback is Jordan Love. That's a problem. The Chiefs' backup quarterback is Chad Henney. Maybe that's not a problem. I don't know. It wasn't know. a problem last year's playoffs. But yeah, yeah, he seemed good. And the Bills' ba- backup quarterback is Mitch Trubisky. So one of the things I was thinking about, when people want to put so much probability on those teams, maybe you can't – maybe because there's four of them, it's okay to yeah. put 50% probability on the four of them. But I don't love the backup situation for any of those four teams. And let me tell you, Rodgers, Brady, Mahomes, and uh, Allen, they better stay healthy if those teams want to win the Super Bowl. Because if any of them had the backup, I certainly would demote them dramatically under the other three of these, any one of the other three of these with a healthy starter. Yeah, and so, I would regress those probabilities down just because of that um, that that kind of injury probability. It's I think it's an interesting question. Is the injury probability for these kind of pocket older pocket passers like Brady and Rodgers were more because they're older versus like the Lamar Jacksons and Patrick Mahomes of the world, which are obviously younger but mobile? That's I think an interesting question. Yeah, it's a great question. Can I ask a, an ignorant question uh, or a question from ignorance? Are teams expected to have quality backups? I mean, how frequently yes. does that happen? Quarterbacks are, are hard, right, to mm-hmm. get. I mean, what, how common do you have, you know, real quality backups? It's rare. It, I mean, it's hard enough to get a good starting quarterback. And it's so hard enough to even define what a quality backup really is, right? I mean, because they're, they're not going to look, in, you know, they're not going to look that impressive relative to the starter. For well, I think we could say, in, 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 for example, I think it was fair to say in New England for a long time, at least, you know, we could say Jimmy G was a pretty good backup, right, to Brady. We have some evidence to suggest that he was a pretty good quarterback. Yeah. Um, I think the Saints last year were in a pretty good situation where they had uh, Breeze, Winston, and Taysom Hill. I think that's a pretty good situation to be in. The, the Eagles had a famously good backup situation. Yeah, well the Eagles a had a pretty good backup it situation. Turned, it turned out well. Let me ask a different question related, though. Which of the systems are most robust to who's quarterbacking it? And I'm going to argue it's not the Chiefs. Yeah. I, don't, I don't know about the other teams so much. but I mean, the Buccaneers, I think, have the best defense of those teams. And so 
I, I would say that the Buccaneers, you know, look, Tom Brady didn't play great the first half of the season anyway. And they, I, I would say the Buccaneers because of the overall team strength. And I would say they also have the best receiver core. So probably, probably the Buccaneers, but my, um, I have le- no faith in Blaine Gabbert whatsoever. So, but, uh, and, you know, Bruce Arians uh, and um, Leftwich would do their best with Blaine Gabbert, but I don't know. It's tough. No, He's just so no. bad. I, I think that there, there was a, you know, back to the psychological stories, there seemed to be some power in Brady himself that would be gone if he's actually not the, the QB out there. Great discussion. And I, I'm going to go with Adi on shorting. I've got a real short thing going on lately, but I, I'll go with that. I'll, I'll short the bucks. I, I'm sorry, Eric. I like the story, but I just odds are, I mean, odds are against the replication guys. Let's talk a little bit about the other football that we have, and it's going to happen sooner. We've got, we're in week zero for college football. We have games, meaningful regular season games this weekend. So in fact, there's kind of an interesting one, the opening kick, the first kick for football season will be noon or 1 PM Eastern uh, on Saturday, Nebraska at Illinois. And we're off to the races. UCLA plays a game against Hawaii. I think uh, UTEP plays New Mexico state. So there are a few games like that. UConn might be playing San San Jose, maybe? No, they're playing somebody else out there on the West Coast. Um, any thoughts on college football? Are you guys paying any attention yet? Are you excited about anything? No, we've got you guys are just all head deep in the NFL. Is that right? It's very sad. So let me give you a, a just heads up. Nebraska, you, you know, you want some real college football tonight, the noon kickoff on Saturday, yeah. <clears throat> Nebraska, Illinois. But I ran a little analysis last night looking at polls versus quants just for preseason week zero, who the polls like versus who the quants like. Of course, they agree on some teams. I got it out on under Massey Peabody, and then I retweeted for our show. <clears throat> I just want to give you all a quick rundown. It's interesting to me how, how they parse because I took the quants. I took Massey Peabody, of course, but I took FPI from ESPN. I took Bill Conley's S&P Plus. I averaged the ratings and then ranked them. And I did the same for the coaches poll and the AP poll. By the way, Kate, before you tell us the result, could you tell our listeners, I'd be interested, why it's more appropriate to first average the ratings than rank as opposed to just taking an average ranking? Or maybe it's not. I'm just wondering why you did it in that order, which I like, by the way. Well, I know you'd like. There's more information in the rating because some teams, you know, the first team might be a lot better than the second team, according to the power rankings, than the second is from the third. So there may be gaps that that the ratings capture that the rankings don't capture. You throw away a lot of information, at least potentially. <clears throat> and certainly in these in these power ranks you do so that a couple of features jump out about this there is an incredible consensus at the top of everybody's numbers Alabama's one for everybody but then the top five are consistent Alabama some combination of Clemson Oklahoma Ohio State and Georgia across all polls and all models and then A&M is like consistent number six Iowa State fellas in case you didn't know consistent number seven and then we get into a very divergent world. And it was fun to look at. I, I put it up on, a, on, a, on a, a scatter of quants versus poles. And you can see the teams that depart from the diagonal where the poles like some teams better, the quants like other teams better. Let me tell you a list of teams and you tell me who you, you think is the poles like them better or the, or the quants like them better. Here are the teams that most. Oh, I love depart- this. By the way, I love this exercise. Go ahead. Here are the- the teams that most depart from the diagonal in one direction, meaning the poles like them a lot better or the quants like them a lot better, one of the two. So those teams are Cincinnati, Indiana, 
Louisiana Lafayette, Coastal Carolina, Northwestern, and Liberty. Well, do we want to take, I thought you asked us tales, which one? I mean, they all go in the same direction? That's, no. I'm giving you, I'm going to give you that batch and I'll give you another batch. The other batch. I think, by the way, can I, uh, let me answer to that batch. And I'm just guessing it from Cincinnati, which I know the best. I think the polls like them better than the quants for that batch. Yeah, those are all, I mean, I think the quants are probably, if I had to guess, quants are going to diminish those teams because of strength of competition, et cetera. And I think those teams have all been ranked. I think I even know this. I think some of those teams you mentioned at the end, which I barely ever heard of, I know they're ranked in the top 25 and there's no oh, way Massey Peabody quant system is going to rank them in the top 25. Okay. You're using actual knowledge, which is oh, sorry. unfair advantage. Oh, so, sorry. About yeah, that. Let me just give you the teams that depart in the other direction. You can decide whether you still believe your story or not, but the biggest departures in the other direction are, Let's go with Miami of Florida, Penn State, Texas, Auburn, and Michigan. I'm, st- I'm going to go with – I'm going to stay with my first guess. So your idea is that the polls like all these Cinderella stories from 2020 and the quants like the blue blood, probably better recruited rosters, and you are correct, Eric and Shane. Good job. So I was really going to throw in that the, the analysts never like Northwestern. <laughs> so that, that was usually an easy one for me. <laughs> well, it's, it's fun to pick on Northwestern because it's such a journalism school that, yeah, yeah of course the AP poll likes Northwestern. But, um, yeah, I mean, I, it looks like there's narratives. I think, I think the, the polls are a little lazy. The teams that were kind of the headline stories last year, the, the overachievers last year, Indiana had this great story, a great year. Cincy ended up in the top ten. Louisiana Lafayette had a great year. Coastal Carolina was like one of the stories of the year, and they just get carried straight into this year's poll. I mean, the average of FPI, Massey people on S&P Plus have Coastal Carolina 50th. They have Northwestern 60th. They have Liberty almost 70th. Louisiana Lafayette, high 30s. Okay, let me, teams, you, let me ask you a very – Those teams are all in the I top know. 25. Let me ask you a very specific question. And this is, you know, I always want disaster every year because of this stupid college football 14 playoff system. If any of the teams currently ranked in the top 25, any, go undefeated, is there a chance they don't make the playoffs? Like Coastal Carolina, Louisiana State, whoever you just mentioned, one of them goes undefeated. Are they a lock for the playoffs? No, right? No way. Well, it depends on what they have to do to get there. So Louisiana Lafayette happens to play Texas in the first game of the year. So if that's Texas a big help. Texas that's- has a decent season. That could be a good help. Um, Brigham Young, they tend to play interesting schedules because they're independent. They have to travel around and play different people. But last year they had a hard time putting together a meaningful schedule. So I don't know what their team, their opposition looks like, but they're at the back of the top 25. If, in fact, they're not the top 25. I got them on there out of the vote totals at the bottom of the thing. They're like 32, 33. So that's cheating. So we're going to um, have another n- real legitimate national champion like UCF a couple of years ago and not actually get to play in the national championship no, it's game. Of, I'm just like your least, it's your favorite drum to beat on the college football season. Is it the, really is. Is the, is the group of five. Well, Eric, you should like the playoff expansion. That should be coming up in a couple of years, and we'll get some. When it comes up, we'll still be on the air. When it comes up, I'll stop beating this drum, and I'll be the different one. But this drum still bothers me. Your your team is Cincinnati this year then, Eric, and you've got a chance to do something because if you remember Pat Forty, we had Pat Forty on a few weeks ago during the Olympics because his daughter was was swimming in the Olympics. And he he pointed out before we were paying attention that Cincinnati – 
one has a good team this year. A lot of guys back strong last year, a lot of guys back and they have two big time games. One is they go to, they play in both Indiana games. They play Indiana and they play Notre Dame. Oh, well, winning those two would help. If they, if they go undefeated and those are their non-conference games, if they go undefeated, then they are going to be right in the middle of the conversation. The question is whether they can actually pull it off. Notre Dame, you know, Bassett Peabody is not very big on Notre Dame. And in general, the models aren't as big as but, the polls are. But you also pointed something else out. What they also want is they want Alabama and Clemson to murder everybody else, absolutely destroy them and embarrass them so that they can move up. Like they want Alabama to blow Georgia out or vice versa would be fine. But, you know, one of them has there has to be a dominant one and two, I think, because, again, if there's this middle zone of, you know, we could take Georgia or we could take uh, Cincinnati. Well, yeah. I guarantee you who they're taking. So it, it's got to be that these teams that are like three, four, five, six, you know, Texas A&M needs to be beaten down. They, they have to be, or the undefeated teams in, you know, from 10 to 25, they're not going. Well, I, I think given since he, a group of five team never starts in the top 10. And so you've got a huge advantage there. Cause re- remember our main story about group of fives is there, you got to kind of have a credibility building year. Yep. First and then a good year. So we saw it with Houston for a moment. We saw it with Boise and we saw it with UCF. You got to have that yep. year zero essentially. And since he had the year zero last year and so, and now they have the schedule in their favor. So it's the perfect setup for Cincy. I don't think I, I, I take your point in general group of five teams are, are, are privileged if the SEC eats its own. But I think this is a rare year where since he kind of controls its own fate. If Cincy goes undefeated, I'd, I'd bet strongly on their making the playoff. But I also bet against them going undefeated. Right, that I do too. Um, all right, fellas, good fun. College football is off and running. We'll have a college football preview show next week. It's something that we started doing a few years ago, and we will dedicate the show to it in honor of week one. Uh, other bits, the FedEx playoff is off and running in the golf world. They just finished the first of three tournaments that make up that playoff Northern trust or whatever it is up on the Hudson got rained out on Sunday, but they finished up on Monday. Tony Finau got his first win in five years. He clipped John Rahm and took another fella into the playoff. I forget his Cam name. Smith. Cameron Smith, Cameron Smith in the playoff. John Rahm was leading by two going into the back. Uh, any thoughts on the playoff design here, Eric, I'm trying to generate some enthusiasm for the whole thing. It's been something kind of taking shape over the last few years. They played 125 guys played last weekend. They're cutting into 70 for this coming weekend. And then the final weekend is going to be 35. 30, 30, 30, 30, 30 is the tour championship. Yeah. I just go by what uh, John Rom had a great quote. Now, of course it's easy for him to say, cause he's the number one player in the world and he's playing fantastic. His comment was just to remind you when it gets to the final 30, it's your rank position that determines where you start. In other words, you're like, what do you mean? Doesn't everyone just play 72 holes? No, no, no. The person who goes in rank number one starts out at minus 10. The second person starts at minus eight. The third person starts at minus seven. The fourth person at minus six. And then eventually there are clumps and eventually the worst starts out at even par. So let's say I'm making it up. Let's say Bryson DeChambeau goes in rank 30th 
to the finals and John Rahm is first. John Rahm has a 10 shot lead on Bryson DeChambeau going before they even hit a golf ball. Now, John Rahm first said that's made for TV. First of all, that's stupid. And secondly, his comment is, wait a second. I could win every single tournament of the year, everyone, all the majors. And I only have a two stroke advantage going into this group of 30. He was even talking about the top end. The guy who wins every tournament gets only a two-shot advantage. So his comment was, why don't you do it like every other sport? You count points. You count cumulative points. Like in in tennis, the majors are worth 2,000. Next, Masters 1,000s, ATP 500s. Count cumulative points. His comment is, you're essentially a racing, because his view is two shots is like a, a random error. I have one bad shot into the water, and okay, I played great the whole season. I don't win the year end. So he's, okay. he's saying, like, it, uh, because they're kind of doing it based on ranks, that, like, somebody, if somebody was that ridiculously dominant, it wouldn't really yep. kind of pervade. And, and the way they've separated the ranks, he doesn't think are reflective. In other words, someone could be a dominant number one, like the greatest year Tiger Woods ever had, and he'd have a two-shot lead going into the tournament. Okay, hold on. There's a couple things here. One, you're, I, I appreciate the enthusiasm with which you're picking up his argument. I think you're overplaying it a little bit because we've, we've got lots of things going on here. One, most people consider it an advance that they came up with this, this, this what's the right term, like handicapped approach to the final weekend because previously there were all these – all these contingencies on points and who finishes where, and it wasn't clear who was going to win the damn thing as they're playing it out on Sunday afternoon. Well, except they had it up on the screen. No, but it, it the universally hated approach. No, the, is- you know what ended it. What ended it was Tiger Woods, before winning his 15th major in the Masters, won the tour championship and ended up second to Justin Rose, who ended up second or third and needed to like get a par out of a bunker to end up third to win the whole year end thing. Yeah. But I, it doesn't justify it to me. Cumulative performance. No, but you know, so two, two, two things. One, it was, it was, they had that reason going in, but you're really raising two separate issues. One, they could have the same approach and not throw away all the information if they allowed different gaps. You know, some guys might be Agreed. three strokes above others. One other guys might be one stroke above others if they did it in proportion to the points when they, they arrived with. So that's, that's a simple fix. They could do such a thing. But the other, the other point is, is it just to ignore the accumulated performance and simplify it in some way? You're throwing away information. But, but Eric, don't we do that with playoffs all the time? It's like, you, we're going to do this two stages. There's two stages. There's this, there's the qualifying stage and then there's the actual playoff. And in this case, they're saying the full year is qualifying and that's going to determine your seeds. That doesn't mean you carry everything you accomplished from the regular season. I mean, consider Eric, what we do in, in football, it's the same thing. The Pats, you know, win the East. And so they get a buy, but some other team has a schlocky year. They win the NFC East and they get a buy. That's not fair. They had different regular seasons. They get the exact same outcome in the playoffs. That's just the way. Maybe, it maybe it's the false sense of precision they're giving. Minus 10, minus 8. I know it's going to sound incoherent and inconsistent. I'd rather them just say the top 30, you all start out at the same place. Winner take all. I'd rather do that than what they're doing wow. now. That's a big trade-off. That's a big trade-off. Okay, that's interesting. That's a strong position. It's an opinion, just an opinion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, th- I think it's a little bit made for radio, but I think it's a discussion we should take up later on because it's a good uh, playoff design, tournament design kind of 
kind of issue. All right, guys, we have to stop now because we've got a good interview coming up in the world of tennis. We're going to do that in Q. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Rolling into the fourth quarter now. The fourth quarter has become our interview segment during COVID. We are delighted to welcome onto the show for the first time in this quarter, Bob Bryan and Mike Bryan, the Bryan brothers, all-time record holders, any number of record holders for um, tennis doubles, men's doubles. They retired recently after a glorious career from the really the late 90s in college and then took the professional circuit by storm in the 2000s, really holding court through the mid-2010s anyway. Right, Mike, Bob, uh, welcome to the show. Delighted to have you. Thanks, fellas. Thank you. Good to be here. Where are you guys calling in from today? You're from Southern California originally. Where Where are you set up now? We're We're down in Florida. Bob's in Miami. I'm up in Tampa. Um, but we're always bouncing around. Yeah, we still got places out in California, but heading up to the U.S. Open pretty soon to go up there and. Uh, go back to our first grand slam in the last couple of years, but yeah, we're going to be making the rounds, um, doing a few things up in New York. Talk to us about that. So my understanding is retirement was about the time the pandemic rolled on, rolled in. So you've been, you've been exploring those waters for a little while. What does life look like now post competition for you guys? Yeah, exactly. You know, last year was supposed to be our, our final year on tour. We're going to do a victory lap, (laughs) um, and we're going to finish at the U.S. Open, but then they announced no fans. So we decided to shut it down uh, with no U.S. Open. We didn't want to play to kind of a sterile, empty house. Okay. So, yeah, since then, we've been um, hanging out with the family. I got a, a boat out here in Miami. and I've just been rolling around uh, the intercoastal. And uh, we've been playing a little bit of tennis. Uh, Mike and I have been meeting up on the road a little bit, doing some clinics and some fantasy camps. But, uh, yeah, we've been chilling, man. We, we uh, hiked Mount Whitney last week uh, together. We went to the summit. It's 14,500 feet. Uh, we did it in one day. It was, like, uh, it, was, it was a grind, but it was fun to, you know, do something like that again uh, together. Uh-huh. And, um, yeah, we were in Atlanta. We were in Cincy last week playing some music with, our, with my daughter. Uh, we, we both love music. Mike plays guitar. I play keyboard. And, so we were on stage with uh, my daughter, who's nine. She sings the lights out. So we were having fun with her. And then, then we're going to the U.S. Open just to do some sponsor stuff. This sounds like a, this sounds like a good life. This sounds appropriate early retirement stuff. Yeah. Speaking of yeah. retirement age, and we're, we're going to go way out of chronology here, but I got to say Eric is a big uh, Tampa Bay Buccaneers fan. And on the show today, yeah. we were wondering about how much longer Brady could go. And it strikes me that y'all might be similar age to Tom Brady. Mike's sitting up there in Tampa. Y'all pushed yeah. your careers into the forties. Do you have any advice for Tom? You, you have any, do you have any, you have any insight no. for how long Tom can keep doing this? I think he's got to figure it out. Uh, I've read his book. He uh, he's got it all dialed in his diet. He takes care of his body. He's got the right guys around him. Um, I mean, he's looking good. I mean, he, he looks, he looks pretty fresh at, I think he's 42 or 43. We just he's turned 44 43. actually just turned oh, he's 44. 44. So he's a year older than us. Um, I mean, there's no reason why um, he can't he can't go for two to three more. What did he sign? He signed a new deal, right? For at least he's, he's got two? two more years. Two more two years. more years. I felt like Bob and I we could have kept going. Um, doubles is not as tough on the body. We could have played a couple more years. Um, 
but it does take a lot of work at that age. You, I mean, the recovery is not as quick. Um, and you know, you gotta, you gotta do a lot of stretching, a lot of massage. It's, it's, it's more off the court than on the court at that age. And you it's mean, just, if you're, you if you're willing family. to do, all, yeah, it's just, okay. you have to just stay on the body. You're, you know, you're doing a lot of ice baths and you're, <laughs> you're doing everything you can to recover. Well, talk just what Eric's trying to jump in, but I want to continue this for real, for real quick. Cause y'all did play into your forties. Um, yeah. what, how did your game change and how did, how did, what did you have to do to offset that? I mean, to watch y'all play doubles is just, it's so much fun, but the quickness and the responsiveness, the reflexes, I've got to believe that that changes some from the time you, you know, you're, you know, you're winning NCAAs at Stanford at 19 or whatever, 20, and then 20 plus years later, you're still having to do the same things on the court. What did you observe and how did you battle that for as long as you did? Yeah. I mean, as you get older, you know, you lose, you lose a step, um, you know, lobs that were, you know, going up in the air, we were, we were jumping up and hitting them out of the, out of the stadium, you know, in our twenties. And then you hit the mid thirties and you got to figure out some other stuff. You know, we started using more signals. We started running more, a lot more plays, you know, as when we were young and a little more athletic, uh, everything was a little more instinctual, but we had to go to more uh, strategy and more game plans uh, later in our career, which worked out great as well. But it was definitely a little more thinking. Um, for a little bit, for a few months there, I was I was injured. I had a hip, um, but we were able to hide it very well just the way we moved on the court together. And that's thousands of matches together, a lot of experience. But Mike was able to cover, you know, my broken hip, you know, for for a few tournaments, just on, on the fact that he knew uh, what I had and where to be. Um, I eventually got a hip replacement. Oh, um, and, and came back and actually played on the tour and we won some tournaments, but, um, but it was funny. Like I, I thought, you know, we were dead in the water when I was hobbling, but we were able to, to kind of cover it with our communication. Bob, can you cool. give me so, yeah, example, we, for, especially for folks who don't play doubles, they may not be as aware of what it means to like run plays as double partners or. Yeah. Partners. Well, in doubles, you know, we, we were a poaching team, which meant, you know, Mike would, Mike would serve and I would a lot of times uh, cut across the middle and try to pick off that return. Um, you know, Mike would cover behind me um, in those situations. Sometimes I would do a freelance and just leave the, the line, the down the line return wide open. Um, you know, we, a lot of guys now are playing what, what they call eye formation where the net man gets right in the middle of the court while the, um, his partner serving this is to create like an indecision on the return and make the returner kind of freak out and not know where to go. We, we never played that strategy, but I would say 90% of guys are playing I formation now. So the game has evolved over the years. Um, guys are getting a lot closer to the net than they used to play. You know, when Macaron Fleming uh, used to play, it used to be pretty straight up, you know, serve and volley. Um, and, you know, the net man would stay, stay pretty stationary. Then, you know, the Woodies came along and Mike and I kind of turned it into a power doubles. We started playing closer to the net, um, cutting off the angles a little more. <clears throat> and now guys are yeah, playing, playing the eye exclusively. So the game yeah, has so, changed a lot. Yeah. So one of the questions I wanted to ask you is, um, and I was, I've always wondered this about tennis. If you guys had decided to focus on a specific surface at the end of your career, 
Do you think you could have been more competitive on that surface? Like, for example, I always like to think of singles for a second. If Mm -hmm. Nadal says, I'm only going to focus on the clay court season, maybe he could win three or four more French Opens. If you guys had said, you're going to focus on hard courts, whether it's U.S. Open, Australian Open, you guys are going to focus on grass, Wimbledon, clay, etc. Would that have helped? Or at some point, that type of specialization wouldn't help? I think that would have helped. I mean, I, I think, I mean, the tennis tour is so long. And um, you're changing surfaces, you're changing balls, and it, it could be tough on the body. So to just stay on one surface um, would be a lot easier. I think, I think clay is actually, you know, it's soft on the hips, but it's actually you're sliding. And that's where Bob actually did his hip. He, um, it's just very unstable ground. And so for doubles, um, you want stable ground. I, we always did better at the U.S. Open and the Aussie Open, and those are on hard. And yep. so if we could have not gone over to Europe and taken three months off, rest the bodies and get ready for the summer hard court, I mean, we could have, yeah, maybe added another five years on there. But the ranking system set up where you have to go out there and grind to get the points. It's only a one-year system. If you want to be seated in these tournaments and you want to have a ranking and you want to have a job, you have to go out there and, and play the, the Masters 1000s and you have to play everything. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Fellas, the, the most obvious question to ask you is what made you so successful? I mean, you guys come along and you win almost twice as many tournaments as people before you. You ran the Grand Slams for the meat of your career. Why, why y'all? There have been a lot of good doubles, Matt, doubles partners before. To what do you attribute your success? I would say, um, I mean, we had the twin factor. We had that kind of that X factor where our communication was so strong, and that's the key to doubles It's just – really moving together out there, being kind of one entity. When a guy goes out wide, you cover for him. And we had this like natural movement and energy. Um, and, and we were best friends. We lived and breathed um, doubles and what we did. I mean, we, we loved traveling together. We'd often be staying in the same room. Um, we'd go practice and come back and, you know, play music in the room. But we also lived together for so many years. So like during the off season, we'd I'd have the number one uh, player in the world down the hall to practice with. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and we just, we just loved it when, when our energy was strong, um, that twin energy was, that was the huge advantage we had over most teams because everyone's so talented. Everyone's so good. Right. But uh, we felt like this almost like a freight train of energy. Once we got it going, we we're great front runners. We, you saw us, you know, we'd always be bouncing around. Um, mm-hmm. And you know, the way so you left and Mike, yeah, so the righty lefty thing was big, uh, but we shared we shared a goal. You know, we always wanted to to be number one in the world. That's you know, we'd write it down January first. You know, then we would have uh, you know meetings every quarter just to go over where we stand on those goals. And mm-hmm. uh, we had a great we had a great coach who kept us consistent. But Mike and I, you know, we never let each other slip. Whether that was just one day in practice or. You know, if I went to the gym, you know, I wouldn't let Mike be lazy. I would take him with me. And uh, we kept the bar very high. You know, no partying, always went to bed early, um, you know, ate the right things, kind of just did it right for the 23 years that we're out there. So, yeah. um, and we were really honest. We good about- yeah, we were, we were very honest with each other. So, if, you know, if Bob didn't play a good match, we'd talk about it. And sometimes it'd be uh, pretty hurtful, but we'd blow off the steam. Um, most, teams they only last together three or four years because the communication the open communication has to be there and a lot of resentment can build you know there are a lot of finger pointing but if bob didn't play a good match i let him hear about it he'd let me hear about it if i missed a few in practice he'd be always on my back 
Um, and we had, yeah, we had some, <laughs> we had some tough moments where we, we, were, we had some fist fights, but it actually, <laughs> in, it kept us together in the long run. I, I don't know how, but it did. <laughs> yeah. Is there, it, I, I just want to understand the, also the skill set for a doubles team as opposed to singles. Like if you took, let's say even now, let's say you took Djokovic and Nadal and you, and let's even imagine they could play together for two years and they focused entirely on doubles. Would they be the number one doubles team in the world? Or is there some skill set? First of all, maybe it's innate, maybe because they haven't been playing it as much their whole lives, they wouldn't be as great, but also is it just like, I'm basically asking the question from a statistical perspective. Are skills unidimensional? You're just better at tennis and not put two great players together. If they can communicate, they'll be great at doubles. Yeah, I mean, look, it is two different sports. Uh, doubles requires, you know, a lot, a lot of strategy. There's, uh, it, it, we can kind of say it's chess. You know, there's so much going on with the four players on the court. Um, you know, the reflexes are big. It's a lot of quick points. Uh, you know, Nadal's legs are super strong. Those aren't going to help you on the doubles court. You know, it's, it's really about the quick eye and, um, yeah, communication with your partner. You know, Mike and I, we just kept building and building every match we played. We felt like we were getting stronger just because we were just seeing more situations. You know, if you put Federer and Nadal on, on the doubles court um, for one tournament, they might struggle. You know, if they kept at it for a year, their, their skills are so strong. Um, you know, still the serve and the return are the most valuable shots in tennis, whether it's singles or doubles. So if, if you can, you know, hit great returns and those guys can hit, hit all the shots. We played Federer, I think eight times. And, you know, we had, we had barn burners with him. Um, you know, we got, we got Nadal most of the time we played him, I think nine times we were eight and one with him. Um, just because, you know, he was playing with Spanish guys. They were liking to stay back. We loved the guys that stay on the baseline because we would just close the net, take over the net. Um, but I mean, look, yeah, you put two champions like that with guys with razor sharp mentality and, you know, just winners. So they would figure it out. The toughest draw in, in doubles tennis is the Olympics because you have the guys, doesn't matter what kind of gold it is. Singles, doubles are mixed. You know, these guys are scraping uh, for the gold medal. So mm-hmm. you have the draws packed, you know, they're not worried about their singles match the next day. They're, they're focused on that. So, um, you know, Nadal won a gold medal in doubles, Federer won a gold medal in doubles. We won a gold medal in doubles, but it was all, you know, the toughest teams uh, just smashing each other, um, you know, clawing for that gold. So that's, if you look at, if you look at the Olympics, those are the, those are the, the draws that are, are really uh, interesting, you know, from the double side. What did you learn from playing mixed doubles after playing so much with your, with your brother and having so much success? I know y'all played some mixed. What traits yeah. did you, you're like, all of a sudden this is different. Like, Oh, well, that's new. And that's greater. That's not quite what I would like. What, what did you learn through that experience? Well, Bob, Bob won seven mixed doubles titles with seven different partners. Wow. Actually won the U S open when Martina was 49 years old. And, um, so Bob, Bob was just very dominating. Um, you almost have to take over the court. Um, and you, and you can't just be, you can't play it nice. You know, you, you attack the weaker player. If, um, if the girl can't volley and she's a little bit scared and she's backing up, you have to be ruthless. And some guys don't have that ability. And then that's why they're not great mixed doubles uh, players. Bob would go, you know, he'd serve about 135 into the body. 
and kind of, you know, a shot across the bow, almost like a fear factor. Um, so a lot of these girls went back up to the fence. Um, those are yeah, my, my younger, my younger days. Younger days. But it's just, it's, it's way more aggressive. Um, you're, you're, you're poaching a lot more. Uh, a lot of times the, you know, overhead goes up. It's automatically the guys. Um, so yeah, it's just, it's just a, a different mentality. Mm-hmm. Mixed. Mm-hmm. But I have to, I have to say that the girls have really improved over the years. I would say that that's evolved a lot too, mm-hmm. where the girls were not used to the, the big serve. Anything over 120 was very tough. Um, they just weren't used to it. And, and I feel like now the girls are really uh, starting to hold their own. Uh, mm-hmm. And I saw that towards the end of our career that they were, uh, they were not less intimidated and they were stronger, they were faster and hit the ball harder, you know? So yeah. um, I think the level of, of women's tennis has really increased. It's gotten deeper. Um, you know, you used to see like Steffi Graf win her first five matches, you know, and lose three games. Um, right, it's, right. Very, it's very competitive right now. And there's a lot more upsets and there's a lot of girls that can win the, win the tournament these days. Mm-hmm. So we, I can tell that we could go on for a long time with you guys. Um, but I, but I want to hear a little bit more on the, on the retirement side. I know you guys have gotten into business and we're always interested in hearing these business enterprises. So tell us a little bit about Slinger Bags. What are you guys doing with Slinger Bags? Yeah, we're the ambassadors for Slinger Bag. And, and this is a ball launcher. It's a ball machine. Um, and we've, we've fallen in love with it for the last couple of years. Um, you know, Bob's on a different coast than me a, a lot of time, and I, I need someone to hit some balls with. So it's a really portable um, – you throw it in your car. It's like a piece of luggage. You put your rackets in there. You can store 140 balls, and you drag it out to the court. And it actually – it fires balls up to, you know, 50 miles an hour, but it has a lot of, like, juice on it, a lot of spin. So kind of like a Rafa forehand. So, um, <laughs> you know, these ball machines used to be really clunky back in the day. These match yeah, makes, yeah. they're huge. And this is just like a bag, you know, it, it comes with all these accessories or has an oscillator, can move the balls around. You can charge your cell phone, <laughs> um, you know, it has a ball picker uppers, you, you know, it, it's, it's really, really cool. So yeah, we partnered with them and they're, um, yeah, they're taking, they're taking the ball launcher to the next level and they're coming out with, I think a really cool app that has drills and instruction. And so that, yeah, it's, it's been cool. Good fun. With them. Good fun. Well, listen, we wish you the best with that enterprise and with everything you guys have going on and enjoy the U S open this year with fans again for the first time in a while. And uh, appreciate yeah. your time to be with us. Kate and Eric. Yeah, thanks, hey, guys. thanks guys. Appreciate it. Thank you. Absolutely. Bye, Bob Brian, Mike, Brian, the Brian brothers, the famous, Brian Brothers dominant on the men's double circuit for years. Appreciate you guys being here. That has been another Wharton Moneyball. That has been two hours of sports analytics. Come back and join us next time for Matty D, the boss man for Deion Simpkins, associate boss man for the whole team over here, Eric, Shane, and Adi. This has been Cade Massey. Come back and join us next week. Between now and then, enjoy your sports. <laughs>